0: Welcome to Generative Leaders. If you want to know about the role that thinking and assumptions play in your leadership, this is the episode for you. Today, I'm in conversation with Lachlan Hickey. Lachlan, it's so wonderful to be here with you today. And I think I would probably place you for me as as one of my generative leaders you have been a, a great mentor to me, someone that's helped me see things in myself um, that I I hadn't seen. And it really encouraged me to explore that. And so I'd love to get your take on what generative leadership is to you and how you think people go about cultivating that.
1: Well, I must be honest, Julia, The uh, the whole idea of generative leadership it's only come to top of mind since you started your podcast series, so it's not top of mind for me, but it does follow a trend that I've been talking to other people about, of this movement in terms of to be responsible, to be restorative, which in some ways is all about not being neutral, but not creating anything new and the thing to me about generative in its broadest sense, also in a leadership sense, is enable something new to be created. So the word generative to me, in whatever sphere I look at it, is to go beyond maintaining status quo to creating something new. And therefore in a leadership context, I think it's about creating an environment where new ideas, new confidence, new leadership emerges so I, I would go on the word generative is creating something new rather than maintaining the status quo and there
0: there's a place for the status quo isn't there you know in some in some cases maintaining the status quo is um what's needed but in in some cases it is about generating something new what, what have you seen about that? What do you um, notice about that in the leaders that you have worked with um, and that you support now?
1: Well, in some ways, the status quo can be seen as a platform from which to change. I think the different difficulty with status quo as a state is um, there's something static about the concept. So I I do see the value in recognising the immediacy of the problem we're facing and also the benefit of what has got us there. So I see status quo as being an asset when it's a platform from which we change. I don't see it as an asset as gravity always pulling us backwards. So as, as a platform for change, and recognising in any change we are not dealing with from today to tomorrow, we're dealing with different states of acceptance of change. So status quo does have its value, but I only see its value as a platform from which we grow in confidence, not a platform we default to.
0: Can you say more about what what you mean by that?
1: Well, and it comes back to part of your original question, what have I seen in leaders? I've seen in good leaders who use status quo as an onboarding experiment is to allow people to enter the world of work, their world of work, a new sphere by giving them confidence that they are included. So a leader who understands the status quo and communicates it, I think, gives a great platform. But in my um, my whole career, I've always only wanted to be a number two in, in admiration of the person I'm following. But then I see a lack of growth. They've given me a platform to grow from what they taught me. But then I feel they've held me back. So I've actually then taken on leadership positions, not as a want to be a leader, but in some ways to find someone else to be a number two
0: to. And, you know, with a lot of the big problems that we're facing in the world, what kind of leadership do you think is needed to, to start to address some of those challenges that humanity's facing?
1: I think the leadership has to have probably two key elements One is the ability to face into the reality and complexity of the problems we're facing. Two, the humility and joy of realising that the more you engage with collective intelligence, the more likely you are both to be able to face into that problem because you're not alone, but also to be confident that the problem is capable of being Solved for what it is rather than being reduced to what we know.
0: And what what do you think it takes to really engage that collective intelligence?
1: In some ways, it's something very simple and very difficult. It's a confidence to believe in the instinct of people to be their whole selves in terms of instinctively seeking to be in relationship with others and actually being judged by the success of that relationship rather than seeing ourselves as singular and being judged by others. And at the heart of that is a word which you and I have debated uh, through our interactions over the years, is the essence of a true belief in the dignity of people and at a practical level dignity means in my view in some of the work I do at the moment is valuing lived experience alongside the value of learned expertise so I think it's, it's a true belief not a, um, a soundbar a true belief in the dignity and goodness of people
0: yeah I'm just I'm just sitting with that for a moment because I guess my reflection on that is the journey that I've been on to know that everybody 's doing the best that they can with the thinking that they have in any given moment, and that 's the true nature of of the goodness of of people, and that it 's us that 's doing the judging of good or bad, and it 's us that 's dignifying others as well, and that um, that separation can create a lot of interference in that collective solutioning, because it cuts us off from listening, from curiosity, and leads us into, into judgment and denial.
1: And I happen to agree with I mean, in some ways, Julia, you know, I've seen your understanding of new things as a journey in the same way in my journey, you know, I, I grew up in an expert profession, but the value of my expertise was making it accessible. I grew up in a an environment where people were judged as individuals, but their success only came through being able to access teams and what i've also seen in your journey, which I think is a really important one, is the courage in the belief in others, even if there are some interim steps when there seems to be no tangible progress because you're not giving something people what they demand, but you're actually backing off and giving them what they need. And that takes a lot of courage to continue believing in others when what they project back to you is they want to believe in you and your expertise. And that's a really moment when you get that balance right
0: yeah I I'd, I'd love to, you know I'd love to hear some of your sort of practical stories on that because I, I know you've got lots of them um, so I don't know if there's any that you sort of come to mind that might be worth um, sharing that sort of illuminate that that difference between being truly in service versus intellectually prowessing <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I'll I, I give you two examples. One from my old life being in an expert profession where I grew up in a small firm, then joined a larger firm. But in the smaller firm, people trusted me implicitly because I had a certain expertise, but I had to communicate to them in a way that was very accessible. And when I got to the larger firm, I found my success versus my peers was not that I was bright to them because technically I wasn't anywhere near, was my ability to interpret complex issues in a way that actually solved the human problem that was behind the technical question. So that was on a a technical professional level. Recently I've been involved with a project with a group of people from around the world who who all have to be under 35. It's called The Economy of Francesco, which is trying to create a... um, a fairer economy, but created by this group of a thousand uh, people from around the world from different walks of life, but they brought in um, what they called seniors is those who've been around and the interesting thing was dealing with that um, belief that the seniors had in the people coming through countered by their desire. To say, well, you know what the answer is. Why don't you tell us? And it's it's taken two or three years as we've moulded it as a group, where there is, there is now a genuine intergenerational, interdiscipline, intercultural experience that both sides were tempted to break at the beginning, uh, either by the youth being rebellious of the let 's call it less youthful, and the less youthful feeling that they had to give their experience to guide so there was a, there was a wonderful um, understanding reticence, pause, humility on both sides until a new truth emerged, and that was wonderful to see, but it took a lot of um, hard work from everyone to get there.
0: And what was the hard work?
1: The hard work was um, breaking through the paradigms about what success looked like. And there was an assumption that the older group had of the youngsters that they would be full of new ideas, they would want to break the mould. But actually, they were more conditioned than the seniors who had had the time, experience, and fortune to break the mold. So what was amazing was each of us relaxing and challenging the assumptions we had about ourselves and about the relevance of others. And it was really difficult because we were both caught in the same paradigm where it would have been very easy to trade within that bubble of Expertise to expertise, experience to experience, model to model, rather than what evolved was this model that we came to, which was uh, fundamentally we had to get two things right. One was um, a relationship between the participants, a deep curiosity of the person allied to. An understanding that part of the success of the relationship was achieving something together that we couldn't do alone. So what we framed it as in the end, which we are dealing with others, is in order to have any team work, you have to get the balance between relationships and tasks right. And yet at both generations and all the disciplines, task was crowding out the need for the fundamentals of relationship. and that was and relationships are natural but hard to work on.
0: Well I guess it's that point that you made about so many inherent assumptions in every relationship because we're creating this view of the other person within ourselves and it's so invisible insidious you know these assumptions that that live there, that it's, it's, it's rare to take the time to see those assumptions that might be blocking the relationship and easier to focus on the task.
1: Well, it is, Judith, I think you raised two really fundamental points there. One is the fact that assumptions are assumptions, they're not facts. And I love the little model um, the ladder of inference, which is and it's worth people looking up, that actually you can start with the same pool of data, but where it ends up, it ends up in opposing facts. Whereas the truth is they're not opposing facts at all. There are different assumptions drawn from selective use of data and then accessing the ladder of inference. But assumptions are always challenging. And the second thing, which I think you touched on, which I think is hugely important is when something is invisible, it's hard to invest in. Whereas when it's visible, you can see an underinvestment leads to a degradation. And it's something you and I have worked on at the Blueprint for Better Business, the framework um, to guide decision making. At its essence, what it does is expose the assumptions around relationships, what creates relationships, an invitation into something where we can create something better together. But then underneath that, character traits that we need to invest in so that the original invitation is authentic to my dignity and desire to work for something better.
0: And, and and what have you learned about what gets in the way of those character traits, of those, you know, of of, of those invisible assumptions being seen?
1: I, I think one of the biggest blockers is um, an assumption that we know what we know and others know what we know, rather than actually interrogating ourselves about our own assumptions, and then being brave enough and curious enough to ask others about theirs. But I think it starts with an assumption that we instinctively know something rather than interrogate it. And the value of interrogation is not to get to a set of rules, but to get to a set of inquiries, what am I really doing about this word solidarity is caring for the world and yet being focused. What am I really doing about this idea of plurality, which is being in someone else's shoes and yet being true to myself? And it's really having the courage to challenge ourselves. One of the interesting projects on the economy of Francesco with this group of people I've been working with is um, to devise something which is really a guide to interrogate your own meaning. Um, Because people just assume they knew what their meaning was, but they never interrogated it. And this was just a, a method of just allowing them to navigate challenge where have my ideas come from, How have I been shaped? Are they really true? Can they be changed? And the other thing which we talked about in the guides to uncover meaning or vocation, as it was in this case, was it's not a fixed point. We continually have choices, and we continually learn from what we're experiencing. So we, our journey is a journey of exploration not a linear journey to a place we've decided is right and we will just plough on regardless of the truth that we encounter along the way
0: well and that's that's such a that's such a big thing for um you know leaders that are trying to solve big problems because it looks like once the problem is solved you know then everything will be right with the world and in one of the previous podcasts, we spoke to to Jonas um Pilgard from Four Life Solutions, who is trying to bring clean water to a billion people He's got the solution, but people haven't realized that you know what makes sense to him and his team doesn't necessarily make sense to them
1: well that i mean that that is such a learning journey from anyone who's an expert it's I don't know his particular issues, but the need, say, so for example, in, in climate, to so have a just transition rather than just transition, where an expert has determined, here's the answer, therefore just get on board or just be run over by the bus. It's really understanding that change is a voluntary process, it's not a mandatory process, and people just don't seem to understand that when people oppose you, it's not because they're attacking you or your idea. It's just, it's not addressing the problem as they see it and what they need from the answer. And this is why I'm so keen on this um, idea of um, the value of lived experience and learned expertise together. And the other thing which you touched on very nicely, which is part of, I imagine the problem that Johannes is having, is is the power of paradox thinking, both and thinking, versus either-or, because too often we think that an either-or is a choice that solves a problem without actually looking at what's underneath it, which is the paradox and the competing interests. That will still remain, whether you've made the choice or not, unless you resolve—or not necessarily, quite frankly, resolve—but reconcile that there's always competing interests. You will never get a long-term solution. You'll just get snippets of choices, but no real long-term transformation.
0: Well, and it comes back to the point that you were—that we were both sort of, you know, looking at earlier—is—is is all of these competing interests the you know the paradox until we see ourselves as thinkers and everyone else as thinkers having thoughts all the time <laughs> that are shaping our reality and our perception that's almost the first place that we don't look we we look to the the visible like you said earlier and we don't look to the invisible that's that's shaping it and question that and inquire around it to come to a a common good
1: yeah and, and I, I agree with that julia i think that um that comfort with our own intelligence and the intelligence of others when we've got so much evidence through you know conflicts which are not debates they're, they're competing assertions So in everyday life, we could say that our lived experience is tribal disagreement. But when we look to our good experiences with friends and family and acts of kindness, you realize we don't give them as much prominence as the dissonance that we see. And then when you relax into a mode that says, well, this is true and possible because I see it every day, And it doesn't need to be crowded out by what I also see. I can just hold them and see how can I balance them. I've been reading this book recently about paradox thinking called Both End Thinking. And it's a lovely, sets it up nicely as a model that you you keep the opposing forces in mind in terms of context, that we need boundaries so we understand what it is is acceptable in the way we solve a problem and we have dynamism is less experiment to see if that works in practice so that's a context uh polarity or paradox and then you've got the people paradox the mindset of both and thinking is accepting there's multiple truths but then also on the other polarity is a comfort with discomfort that actually realising that having multiple truths makes things uncomfortable. And therefore, what can you do to understand that discomfort is actually a pause moment to relax into the reality of the problem? And I I just kind of like that as a a mental model.
0: Well, it's like if you can just see it as a fact that everybody's going to have a different view, you know, it's just... It's just the nature of human beings and you can relax into that fact then you know you don't have to believe that people will believe what you believe you you know for a fact they won't (laughs) it's
1: gonna happen let me see the joy in it and not the opposition
0: well exactly and if you can relax into it then you can be comfortable in the discomfort because it's you know the image that's coming to mind at the moment for me is watching my niece and nephew learning to swim recently. And that moment of getting in the water without the, um, the, um, the armbands and then being held by the water and sort of relaxing into that feeling of being held by the water. Um, and there's something about, you know, when when you kind of see that fact that everybody's going to have a different perspective, everybody's going to, you know, see a different view. And if you can relax and be held in the collective intelligence, in the collective wisdom, you know whatever surfaces will be wise and be okay with that.
1: And it is having that courage to believe in what you believe. It's, it's fascinating. It's not quite as, um, as human as your story, but here in, in Ireland the, the neighbours have horses and sometimes they bring them down to, to the beach. But then seeing the horses actually run into the sea to the extent that they lose the sand and they're swimming. And you would go, oh, my God, how does this work? But they don't panic because the rider doesn't panic. And, it's, and you say, how the hell does this work? But it's a joy to watch that both the rider and the horse believe in what will happen.
0: And that is a beautiful thing. Just relaxing into that. What will happen? And you know, one of the things that we, I know, we both sort of looked at is this human condition for control, and then the realization that you're not really in control. (laughs) Which is another way of saying, you know, kind of get comfortable in the discomfort um, as a as a leader, um, because life's just happening and things will show up that you could have never imagined.
1: But that, that brings something to mind, Julia, that both you and I worked on, um, you know, the archetypes of leadership, which, which our friend Nash uses a lot. Uh, and the reason I mentioned that, remember you and I worked on it and we had two polarities. There was command and control and there was collective venture. And we both had an intuition there was something in the middle, which we then named Commanded Collective. And the power of that was to realize no one likes extremes. And to have something in the middle that was actually a dangerous default allowed people to reflect that they weren't truly what they wanted to be in terms of the way they want to project themselves. They just happen to be acting in a way that once it had a name, they could go, oh my goodness, that's not what I want. But by opening it up and just giving them choices and defaults, people could make choices, not as a right or wrong, but as a, um, a reality. If they wanted to be X, they had to practice their way into it rather than proclaim that's who they are or who they wanted to be
0: such a such a fascinating reflection moment in seeing how that space for reflection for dialogue for questioning is something that people sort of you know sit there and say yeah yeah but i don't have time for that i you know i got to i got to get on with this stuff and you know one of my reflections has been that you know it's a slowing down in order to speed up that enables that that reflection of of where you are of where of where those assumptions are and, and brings us back to that inquiry and that curiosity
1: and i agree with that i think the other thing and once again this is why i like this paradox model but some of the work we've done in the past is um In in some ways, having boundaries, having a starting point, actually helps people grow into uncertainty. Sometimes when we start with uncertainty and we keep the uncertainty and we give no foothold to where people are, I think it panics them unnecessarily so I, I do see the benefit of boundaries. Um, here are the things that we're discussing in this uh, container, but the container doesn't contain you. It gives you the places where you can you can push, but somehow there's there's a place of safety from which they can become free. And in the past, sometimes I've made the mistake when I was. Um, in a very amateur way, trying to coach people in my my business world, I still remember someone, she rushed out of my room, slammed the door and said, you always answer a question with a question. It's just so frustrating. And I thought that was really great because I was helping them get to an understanding. But I'd overstepped the mark. I'd given them no starting point from which I could ask deeper questions. So one thing I have learned is having boundaries is a creative tension. It's not uh, a closing down way of thinking. But if boundaries are rules that can't be challenged, then you go too far the other way. So this, and that's why the paradox thinking I like is, is boundaries and experiments rather than simply one or the other
0: fabulous well Lachlan it's been an absolute pleasure in exploring this this topic with you um today and I'm sure there's much more exploration that we we should have um so perhaps maybe you'll come back and do another episode um at some point in the future But in the meantime, if people want to find out more about the work that you're doing or um, get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that?
1: Two or three ways. One is if they want to kind of get a sense of what I'm about, they can go onto my LinkedIn profile. If they want to get a sense of the work that you and I did together, going onto a Blueprint for Better Business website gives some sense of the evolving thinking between a way of thinking and a way of acting. And if they want to email me, they're welcome to lochlin.hickey at gmail.com.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Lachlan. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: A joy. Lovely to speak to you. Thanks, Julia.
0: As I said at the top of the call, Lachlan has been uh, one of my mentors and so being with him today was a real joy to reflect on my own learning journey since I first met him almost over 15 years ago and uh, to reflect with him on where we have both gone. I thought it was really interesting how he talked about the paradox effect and the both and thinking, the invisible assumptions that we make and the value in inquiring about those assumptions. Those assumptions are shaping our lived experience of life and Often we don't see how those assumptions interfere with our relationships, with our problem solving capacity and with our general life. So something to reflect on is what are your own assumptions? What are you assuming about yourself? How is that limiting you? How is that helping you? And what assumptions are you making about others? I thought the other really interesting piece that Lachlan raised is the choices that we make every day to either follow those assumptions or to see the world differently and how in every moment we can see the learning journey that we're on with no destination other than our own personal growth And to have joy in that and to focus on all of the really wonderful things that are happening in our lives and focus less on the dissonance or negative aspects of our life. Acknowledging that goodness can do a lot for you. And uh, it's something that I would encourage everyone listening to reflect on in their own lives. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think it would resonate with others, please do go ahead and share it. You can do so at generativeleaders.co or wherever you get your podcasts. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Generative Leaders.